Welcome to Build Repeat, a Paces podcast. Hello, today we're speaking with Kyle Baranko, data scientist at Paces. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. To start, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I've been working at the intersection of energy and data for several years now. I originally got my start in the energy industry through marketing, actually. So my first job out of school was working for an agency that specialized really in everything under the clean tech umbrella. But through that work, I got exposure to a lot of like my clients were working on data projects. So specifically like machine learning applications at the grid edge and getting a sense for how to leverage all of this data within the energy industry to really just translate those insights into more value and kind of harmonize this complex dance between you know re- renewable energy resources and, and demand. So through that work, I just decided data science was you know, something that was too interested to just kind of be on the outskirts on and dove um, full speed ahead. So I've been working in a technical capacity since then. And so those first couple of uh, energy-focused startups, I guess, what did they have in common across the f- couple of companies before Paces? I'd say they were all working on data solutions at the grid edge. So kind of taking advantage of that transition from a legacy analog centralized one-way system where you've got these big bulk power plants to generating electricity according to a fixed schedule and just kind of operating with demand as this fixed side of the function. Demand is not flexible to new technologies where you're putting batteries and the smart thermostats at into homes and businesses and industrial sites and using the demand side of the equation to optimize based on cost. So it was really about like unlocking the the demand side of the of the grid. And why is the data picture becoming more complicated as part of the energy transition? That's a lot. I think um, I think overall there's like a lot of challenges between normalizing and just kind of making these comparisons data across different markets in different regions. So like ISOs and utilities all have different ways of report, reporting data and different systems that providers have to integrate with. So there's a lot of like challenges and scalability of making sure like a technical solution works from utility to utility, from ISO to ISO, because a lot of the times it's almost like doing business in a different country or based on just how they regulate the industry or, you know, just the, the different history of the institutional processes that they've set up to, to manage that data and how they make it available. And within those organizations, you know, as we, cause we've dealt with some of those organizations, you've dealt with them in previous roles as well. How can we, I guess, as a software technology community better interact with these entities? So as you mentioned, these are very old entities. These are fairly risk averse entities, and they're also typically not the most logically uh, sophisticated entities. And they're kind of, you know, there's this challenge where both from a culture and a needs point of view, you have people kind of often talking across purposes between these large historical entities and, you know, new fast moving companies, not just software companies like us, but also the renewable developers themselves. How do you think we can, I guess, better divide or better bridge that gap? So I think like at a holistic level, the the talent base of the data industry and a lot of people who have been working in tech for the last 10 to 20 years, mostly, you know, in, in media and, and, and communications and, and you know, consumer tech are, you know, there's a lot of interest in working in these types of problems now, which is like incredibly exciting. And I think like what we've seen with a lot of the grid is that it's this big analog system, you know, that has been around for a long time. So they've like seen each successive wave of, 
digitization that's occurred since like the 80s and 90s, right? They, you know, you adopt computers, you these big mainframe computers, but it's not like a, a digitally native industry. And I think from the opposite perspective, with the most innovative data companies, they're digitally native. They're like Netflix, right? It's it's completely in the cloud. And that's where a lot of the data science talent has, has really come from. And so I think naturally we're already seeing the shift of like focus back towards looking at the the utility and grids data infrastructure from a fresh lens and really leveraging a lot of the expertise um, over the lot that's built up over the last 20 years into into the grid again. And so I think what we can do as a data community is really just have a understand that it's a two-way street. Like I think the fact that a lot of the data science talent is coming from a digitally native, this kind of cloud native environment where yes, we're working for and e-commerce and, you know, a lot of like applications where the stakes are lower, just have a sense of humility about how complicated it really is to transition this analog system that is really based on electricity, which is physics. You know, you have to kind of reconcile the digital world with like the physical world. And a lot of applications that we're seeing now are, are really struggling with that as we begin to integrate hardware with software for these, for these data applications. Like you're kind of seeing the same thing with autonomous vehicles. Like we're still waiting for, the, a pure template to emerge where we can bring the everything we've learned into building rebuilding from a hardware perspective as well so i just say like the best thing we can do for the data community is have a second sense of humility and like yes we have a lot of expertise to bring and a lot of ideas about how to transition the the grid to a more digitized flexible paradigm um, but at the same time we also have to you know, have this understanding of how really like complicated it is that to, to run, you know, a transmission system and to run a distribution network. Like these are, these are things that are very, very high stakes, very, very dangerous. And, you know, up to this point, we, we just haven't had the data quality to really understand like what's happening where, and you can't really do that until you work together to understand like what, where your gaps are and what you need to install. Yeah, you know, one way I think about it is for a software company, you know, like us or you know, bigger entities, in a way your worst case scenario from an outage is people can't do their work, right? Which is still very bad, and people should have all the kind of processes internally and uh, data security and cybersecurity and all these kind of things to prevent those kind of issues ever happening. Uh, the worst case scenario for a grid operator is there's no there's no electricity in you know millions of people's homes, and you have all of the knock on effects of that. You know, you're you're hitting percentages off annual GDP for a given location if that goes on for more than a few minutes. And so the trade-offs are, are the the balance between risk reward is just very very skewed um, across how both of these types of entities kind of think about the world. And so yeah, so it's like we we probably as the more open to risk, move faster side of the equation have to probably go further to meet past the middle and actually go even further to like. To, to work with those entities who are understandably more risk averse. Right, exactly. Like move, move fast, break things can work in social media, but it's a little bit more complicated when you get into working with uh, physical systems. Absolutely. And so we're talking a lot about kind of this general idea of data, data at the edge, a little bit more specificity, but what are the big buckets of data that renewable project developers specifically care about? You know, make that concrete for us. Sure, I think so. You can break it down into some major variables such as interconnection everything related to where is the grid, what are the attributes of the grid that relate to where I want to set my project and move forward with integrating into this complex system that is the electricity network. 
I would also say another big bucket is the geophysical or environmental constraints. So from a renewable energy perspective, you want a site where the sun actually shines, you're not on all south-facing slopes, you want to maximize the potential of that renewable energy resource, and you also want to abide by like low construction costs and not ruin any pristine environments um, where it may be optimal to to site projects as well. So you've got the, the big environmental component. Um, you also have like the, the permittability side. So, and this is what's super interesting from a social science perspective, but really like understanding the nature of the communities in which you're trying to build a project. Because a lot of times like the actual local governments have control over zoning and they have like specific opinions about where they want to build, how they want their community, what they want it to look like really. So you need to have an assessment of what types of permits are required in order to build a project in a specific area. And what is like the flexibility or specificity or the restrictions around those permits too? Like, what are your setbacks? Like, you know, a, a big flat field can actually look really nice when, on initial inspection, but the setback requirements are pretty onerous or it's pristine protected farmland that makes it a bit more complicated and you have to have a more thorough conversation. And then I'd say the last one is related to the, uh, if we're talking more about sticks, this is more about the carrots. So this is the financial incentives and specific adders that may be available where communities do want to redevelop a given area, potentially like have you know, tax incentives to build on brownfields or tariffs are particularly high in a given area. The financial component or the revenue side of the equation is, is, uh, is of course, very important as well. And from a, I guess, data collection, data maturity, modeling maturity point of view, like where are the real kind of challenges? I think in the past you've talked about internally about this kind of two by two matrix for data. Can you speak to that and how it applies to those different buckets of data? Sure. So I'd say that for the two by two matrix, you can think about like model sophistication on one spectrum where you have simple versus complex models and you have data maturity on the other scale. You have, you know, high data maturity or low data maturity. And so for the data maturity perspective, you can think about that as High data maturity is like digitally native data. You know, it's you've been working in the land of API, APIs in the cloud for a long time, so you can do machine learning at scale. Low data maturity is kind of what we're experiencing with a lot of this transition from an analog grid system to a, a digital grid, where for the first time, a lot of recorded data is now finally becoming available, but the stakes are higher and you really you know, need to navigate that, that landscape a bit more carefully. So the highest value data science products, um, in my opinion, are really with simple models and low data maturity or complex models and high data maturity. So complex models and high data maturity are kind of what you see with like ChatGPT, where you have a digitally native ecosystem and everyone has access to the same amount of data. So the real competitive differentiator is thinking through what is the most sophisticated algorithm that I can create and how is that going to unlock the, you know, the most value for my customers? Like a lot of what you see, you know, at the big tech companies right now, I'd say another opportunity for value. And this is where the energy industry can really shine as we begin to record a lot of this, the new data that was previously unavailable and work together with utilities and communities to digitize previously, you know, non-digitized systems is the simple model and low data maturity scale, where much more care has to be put into how you collect and model and structure the data rather than the sophistication of the algorithm necessarily. And so as this applies to you know the four major buckets that I outlined, I would say interconnection actually has like fairly higher data maturity from a from the developer's perspective compared to maybe some of the other buckets like permittability, where a lot of the times like the good hosting capacity maps app actually do like a, a fairly solid job of directing developers to the 
the right places to cite their projects and attempt to connect to the grid. But you can still have, like, think about a low, from a low data maturity scale because you have like all of the interconnection cost data, the queue information, and these other dimensions that really paint the full picture of what it will cost in, in order to connect to a grid at the given area and assess where is the optimal place to connect to the grid. They're coming from a lot of disjointed sources, even within the same like territory and utility perspective. And it's really, really hard to normalize, synthesize that and get a complete picture of the state of the network in a given area. And it's even harder to do that when you're making these apples to apples comparisons or try to assess like strategic trade-offs between one region or another. So I'd say like for these four buckets that we've outlined, like the interconnection one is a bit complicated. Permittability is is also fairly low from a data quality perspective and you really need simple transferable models. So this is one where a lot of developers or people have hypotheses about what makes a workable project. And I'd say there are a lot, they're very qualitative in that they have intuitions about how communities may react to a proposed project or where the optimal place to develop is. You know, some townships are more friendly than others, but these are a lot of like kind of hypotheses that have yet to be backed empirically. That's going to be really challenging, but also, you know, high opportunity to test those, to finally test those hypotheses and collect the necessary data to do so. And then just finally touching on the geophysical and environmental aspects, as well as the financial and political, the revenue side of the equation, say geophysical and environmental actually also have high data quality, where you have a lot of like satellite imagery in the US government does a great job of doing these, you know, very sophisticated surveys of the topology of a given area flooding studies and you know mapping out flood blades and stuff so i'd say from a geophysical perspective the, the data maturity is fairly high and you see a lot of like complex you know satellite imagery machine learning applications on some of the some of the data that's being collected in that space and then finally from a financial perspective again i think you know it's uh, of the energy industry the markets side of the the industry is actually fairly advanced from a data quality perspective, because like in order to transact in an energy system, you kind of have this digital record, which is like the market price. And so there's actually been some some good analytics that are you know making these trade-off decisions between looking at a given market or not based on price. And you can actually get into some good analytics and adders. Um, but it's a bit more complicated because, you know, in some cases for developers like Community Solar, you're trying to parse legislation and these big documents are kind of the with a price signal that you kind of have to assess whether to go into a given area. So it is, it kind of depends on like the specific use case that determines the data maturity in that arena. But I'd say it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag and generally you can't get like easily available price information um, on the, the revenue side of the equation. That zoning and permitting piece um, is super interesting. So we've heard, and obviously we're not going to share any true uh, IP from any of our developer customers. Um, but it has been also interesting for me talking to different folks about some of the heuristics that they've developed around, is a com- given community going to be pro or anti large-scale solar? And so can you kind of speak to some of the kind of interesting different perspectives and sometimes contradictory perspectives of developers as they've talked to different communities and some of the guidance that they've had around, uh, yeah, what, what makes a good place to Sure. So I think the, the two main axes to compare how community sentiment determines favorability for sustainable infrastructure development falls along two two axes. It's um, time and space. And so a lot of the hypotheses that developers have been mentioning to us fall along the timing hypothesis. There's this kind of idea that based on your knowledge of a given area, you can identify the sweet spots of permitting within specific communities based on like the attributes and demographics of that community. 
and existing generations. So if you look at what I like to call the Goldilocks hypothesis, where a lot of developers will say, ooh, we really like areas with one to two projects in the, in the given jurisdiction, because that shows that there's a clear path to permittability. Like you can build solar there and there may be an existing process within the community to approve that project, but you're not getting into the five, six, seven, or eight zone where you're having so much solar built up in an area where people are a little they're a little tapped out they're tired of looking at solar panels and they're more willing to whip up sentiment and you don't want to be the developer that enters that jurisdiction and tries to go through the permitting process and you're the one that kind of sparks the changes in the legislation that make it harder to build your project so timing the sweet spot within these communities is very important i would also say related to how the timing can change the sentiment can change over time. The sentiment can also change based on proximity to nearby townships and nearby communities as well. So if you look at a given area where, and this is like worked both ways for a community that is pro solar and maybe like welcoming renewable energy development, a neighboring community can see a couple community, a successful community solar projects in one area and say, Hey, we actually want to facilitate similar types of development it's built on a landfill. It's really providing tangible benefits to our community. We want to get out ahead and begin to adopt solar-friendly legislation and make it explicitly so. And you can also run it into the off- opposite scenario where, you know, maybe a community is becoming more saturated with lots of solar. And depending on, like, you know, the surface of connection between these two AHJs, you are, like, looking at maybe, like, how quickly can the, the idea that a community is becoming saturated and getting sick of solar, like another community nearby may want to get out of ahead of it and adopt a similar legislation to like prohibit it and make sure that like they don't, they don't fall on the same development path. And that could really be a function of like how tightly men are the, those communities? Like how many school districts do they share? Is there a lot of overlap and like commuting patterns between the two? Are like the people in, the, in these communities talking, are they, you know, are they similar? Are they dissimilar? So there's a lot you can do in kind of like tracking the state of the authority having jurisdiction over time and how they relate to one another through space to, you know, to try to understand how these cultural aspects that dictate legislation may disseminate uh, between the two. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about this is, and part of my kind of influence of this, I was coming from, I was in the finance space for many, many years, and I was working with uh, traders who were building very large models to try to predict price of different stocks, right? And one of the really interesting things that kind of, being in that world taught me is often they wouldn't know, they would throw lots of data about and try to find some predictability, but they would very rarely have like a truly causal explanation, right? It's like, okay, this stock is correlated with something out there in the world, but why is it correlated? Well, it's actually less important to a trader because they're just seeing it's correlated. And so if, you know, this leading indicator goes up and it makes the stock go up, once I see the leading indicator go up, I'm going to buy more of that stock, sell it when, it when it's high, all that kind of thing. I think what's really interesting about the space around the permittability and you know working off the kind of histor- the experience and the heuristics that the developers have developed is that when I've talked to them about some of these kind of similar similar elements, and we talk about at paces about trying to figure out ways to aggregate this, there's a lot of like, oh, you're trying to f- paces trying to build maybe some sort of qualitative score. And it definitely is, this, it makes sense, right? When you're kind of thinking through, it's like, is this just a amalgamation of a lot of qualitative information from developers themselves? But the, I guess one of the ways I think about it is we actually don't know what the correlations really are, right? A developer or a set of developers who have a specific theory of the case for why a 
given jurisdiction is going to be easier to permit. Maybe right that, but they might be right for like the wrong reasons, right? There might be some other correlate of data, right? And so a classic example is on the demographic side, what's the average income of the community? Is the project near a specific type of school district? There's various things like that, that the developer might intuit through other kind of qualitative information, but they don't actually, because it's a very hard data problem, they don't have access to the underlying uh, maybe causal uh, information or the high correlate co piece of information. And so how do you think about that mix? How, how to kind of manage things where what looks like the actual reason may not be the reason, and it, there might be a discoverable process to find an underlying deeper reason? Sure. So I'd say, yeah, like the stock examples, like those one of those classic cases where for data science and like modeling problems, you just have your, you have a straightforward input output map. You have like the target variable of what you're looking to predict. And you have a lot of like related data that you know they are correlated in some way, and you're just basically fitting the data to the curve. I think when it, you're operating in landscapes with lower data quality, you like you mentioned, you have to begin to assess like causal models and try to like paint a more detailed picture of how the process you are trying to model actually like works. And that's where we're really hoping to get into like testing those like hypotheses. I would say so for. The interconnection landscape a lot of the most innovative a lot of the most innovative like modeling approaches have really like become these like combinations of like machine learning approaches and purely supervised learning and fitting the curve to the data versus also like understanding the the power flow and doing actual power flow and production cost simulations to kind of like marry this detailed causal model and this picture of how we think the world will work with also like the macro picture of like learning from data at a massive scale so as we enter this specific modeling problem, I would say like testing, it, it's kind of this complex dance where yes, it's very qualitative, but for the first time you can create this kind of two-way street where the developer or whoever is operating you know, at a very detailed level in a given community can you know begin to do the pattern recognition a bit. And then you can create this situation where you use data to test that pattern. You test that hypothesis that the developer or you know, whoever is operating in the area puts forth. And you can do that at a rapid scale if you're collecting like strategically the, the right data to test those hypotheses and begin to paint this picture of like, you know, what is correlated, what is not correlated, and why or why not is that surprising. So I think product development really here like looks almost more symbiotic between like the person using the application versus the actual data, rather than the data like learning and providing a recommendation. It's just much more of a two-way street, much like, you know, one of my favorite products on you know, the market from a data science perspective is Spotify, because Spotify doesn't exactly have a picture of what your music taste is, but it does provide really intelligent recommendations and it learns really quickly when you you provide feedback to the Spotify system. And it's just a perfect example of like your music taste may change over time, you know, the nature of like new music release gets released, but like the system is evolving and sucking in as much data as it can about the community. The developers also operating the community and you're really just leveraging like the strengths of, of each like empiricism at a massive scale from the data system side as well as you know the the pattern recognition the hypotheses the the creativity and intuition from the developer the user side absolutely and that is exactly what we're kind of using to influence some of the kind of product and hopefully eventually product direction of paces this has been great kyle thank you so much thanks james it's been a pleasure Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, we'd love a five-star rating. Thank you so much.